Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, very good morning to you. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, well done for making it. And um, uh, this is the handout that you uh, need for this section. If you like handouts, I think you will find it useful. Um, even if you don't want to drop anything down, just uh, you'll, you'll get a point of where I'm at. Uh, so it says Isaiah chapters 28 to 39 at the top. Uh, that I think you'll find uh, useful. I hope you will. I'll, I'll try and refer to it along the way so you know where we are uh, as we go. Uh, now, uh, from uh, September to uh, December 2012, we studied uh, chapters 1 to 12 of Isaiah. Uh, you might, uh, might remember that uh, in our small groups. And I hope that was a, a good time. I certainly enjoyed preaching through it. Um, I preached through it while we were uh, studying. And then uh, this time last year... I preached through uh, chapters 13 to 27, which we didn't do in small groups, but, um, but it's uh, been preached through. So uh, we begin, we sort of continue on our journey through uh, Isaiah, uh, 28 to 39, and um, uh, it's my job to try and give us an outline uh, of that section um, and to put it in the context of the whole book. Um, and um, I hope that by the end of this hour, you'll feel better prepared to lead your small groups uh, on this section, but also really excited about the prospect of studying Isaiah chapters 28 to 39. Uh, that's uh, been my desire as I've been preparing, uh, that you would, at, this, at, at the end of this hour, it might not even be an hour, um, with, with the wind behind us and a bit of luck, um, but at the end of this hour, you will be going, I can't wait to get into the book of uh, Isaiah at this section. Now, um, I'm going to give you a bit of an overview now of the book of Isaiah. I gave a fuller overview um, back in September 2012, and I know the notes are available and uh, the talk is available uh, from that if you want to listen to it again, but much of it will be the same. Um, Here's a brief summary now of the direction of travel in the book of Isaiah. I think we need to do this, this big stuff before we then go down into 28 to 39. Uh, because it just puts it right in its context. Uh, you might remember last time I talked about bookends. Uh, so the bookends of Isaiah are chapters 1 to 5 and chapters 65, verse 17 to 66, 24, the end of the, the, end of the book. Um, and uh, those bookends uh, work uh, as a sort of bracket around the whole book, telling us what the whole book is about. Let's begin very quickly. I'm going to just give you those bookends and then we'll work in towards 28 to 39. Uh, Now let's begin at the very beginning, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Have you all got a Bible open in front of you? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Very importantly, this is the vision concerning, look at it there, Judah and Jerusalem. Nothing complicated, but it's a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, uh, something I was going to do for later, but I'll do it now. This is Judah, not Israel. Very, very important to make the distinction. You might remember when we studied it before that we tried to make this distinction. Um, By this point in biblical history, um, uh, the 12 tribes have separated. 10 tribes have gone north. And they're now known as largely, almost exclusively, but not exclusively, just to make it a little bit confusing, almost exclusively in the book of Isaiah, when you read, well certainly the first 39 chapters, when you read the word Israel, you've got to think of the 10 tribes that are what we call the northern tribes, that eventually in in biblical history become Samaria. They're not going to be the real sort of people of God as it were. The southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, just known as Judah, 
are the line from which the Lord Jesus will come and who we now call Israel. Certainly when you come to the New Testament, you call them Israel. Okay, that's really, really important to get hold of because I'll often refer to, um, I'll often refer to uh, Israel or, or the northern tribes and, uh, and we mustn't think that that's who, as it were, the, the pure people of God are at that point. Okay? Um, so this is concerning Judah and, you notice, Jerusalem as well. The whole of the book of Isaiah, it's interesting, has a global perspective, uh, often talking to nations all around, often talking about the, the, the way all the nations are going to come, but where they're all going to come to is Jerusalem. And interestingly, Isaiah virtually never leaves Jerusalem. Uh, the, the whole book is centred around Jerusalem. Even when they're carted off to exile, it's, it's, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, and you see why at, at the end. Um, and I'll show you this in a moment. So, it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, you'll see that Judah and Jerusalem are thoroughly sinful. Thoroughly sinful. Rejected the Lord. Uh, look at how it begins, chapter 1, verse 4. Our sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, and here's what sin is. They have forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on him. Now that is worked out, that kind of sinfulness is worked out in many, many ways, but that is the heart of what sin is, of course. It's rejecting the Lord, spurning uh, him. So that's Judah, the nation. Uh, And one other uh, reference from this first section, chapter 1, Verse 21, uh, the the city, Jerusalem. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. I mean, this is horrible. This is not the sort of thing you want to be reading about before nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. She's a prostitute. Uh, So the city has become a harlot, once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. You see how the rulers, rather than rule, have got into bed with the the, the crooked people of the the city. They all love bribes. Cash for questions. It's all there back in uh, Isaiah chapter 1. And they chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. Here are the weak people that the leaders ought to be looking after. They don't care for them anymore. The widow's case has not come before them. Do you see the problem? Now that's the, the state of Judah and Jerusalem in the first, really, you see that all the way through the first five chapters of, um, of, of Isaiah, except for two little moments. I'm not going to go into that now because I did this last time, but there are two great moments in chapter two and chapter four, uh, which are different. But basically, that's where we're at. Now, that's the one end, that's the one bracket, that's the one part, that's the first bookend. Turn with me now, if you will, to chapter 65, and you'll see the other... Uh, at the, the, the end, now how, how the book ends. So in 1 to, in one to 5, we've seen a, a thoroughly sinful nation in a thoroughly sinful city. By the time we get to the end, we see a faithful and renewed people, interestingly, from all nations gathered in the heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, but it is the new Jerusalem, or Zion, as we often call it, and as indeed Isaiah sometimes calls it. Let me give you two examples of that uh, from the end. Chapter 65, verse 17. Look, behold, I create a new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered. They will never come to mind. Um, 
But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and a people its joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem, take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Do you see how different Jerusalem and the people of Judah are by the time we come to the end? This is the new heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, what we sometimes unhelpfully call heaven, but we ought to be calling the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Um, that's what we've got a picture there of. And, and it's a delight to the Lord. Not this people who were horrible and far from him, you see. And then um, have a look at 6620. Um, chapter 66, verse 20. Uh, they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, on wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them to the Israelites uh, as the Israelites bring their grain offering to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. See, it's a clean place, this new Jerusalem, with people from all nations, a wonderful gathering of God's people. So the bookends teach us that Isaiah um, is about, the book of Isaiah is about how God will transform a rebellious people in a sinful city to eventually be a faithful people in the new heavenly Jerusalem. It's just the gospel that you and I know, so I could have just said that. It's glorious, isn't it? Um, have I put this on the handout? I think I have William Dumbrell. Yeah, there we are. He says, Isaiah 1 presents us with the picture of a decadent Jerusalem whose sacrifices cannot any longer be accepted and whose prayers must be turned aside. Isaiah 1 functions as an introduction, not only to Isaiah chapters 1 to 12, but to the whole book. Appropriately, therefore, the prophecy concludes with the emergence of a new Jerusalem as God's holy mountain to which the world will go up in pilgrimage of worship. So that's how... Um, that's how uh, that's how the book ends. Well, that, that's the direction of travel. Important to remember, wherever you are in the book of Isaiah, and that's where it's going. Now, if you turn over the page, you'll see a diagram of uh, the structure of Isaiah, uh, as, uh, as I kind of understand it. I'm very, I'm very confident that this is the structure of Isaiah, chapters 139, less confident in 40 to 66, but we're not studying that this time, so it doesn't matter too much um, at the moment. Uh, but... Um, You'll see, again, uh, very, very straightforwardly, Isaiah has two main sections, 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. There's a definite marker at the end of 39. Um, But because our studies are coming from the first half of the book, we'll look at 1 to 39. 1 to 39 are split into the following sections. We've already seen like an introduction that tells us how sinful the the place is. Isaiah then has a a commissioning um, to a ministry, a ministry of judgment, incidentally, but we're not going to go into that now. And then for our sakes, uh, this morning, 7 to 39 is a section. And in this section, if you've seen there, I've put Judah is called on to trust the Lord. Now within the section 7 to 39, there's another like bracketed moment. Um, 7 to 12 and 36 to 39 form a bracket to this whole section. And that becomes very clear when you see that there's, and we'll look at this a bit bit later uh, later on this morning, you see there's a very definite um, parallel between um, uh, chapter 7 and chapter 36. Uh, 7 to 12 is all about King Ahaz, 
Uh, 36 to 39 is all about King Hezekiah. King Ahaz falls and, 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 and is disastrous. In 36 to 39, Hezekiah is not quite perfect, but he's, by the time, I tell you, by the time you've read through 35 chapters of Isaiah and you get to Hezekiah, you are jumping for joy that Hezekiah is not like the rest of them. He's not great, he's not perfect, but he's, br- he's brilliant compared to everybody else. And um, you'll see that um, uh, when, when, we, when we look at this in more detail, in chapter 7, verse 3, and chapter 36, verse 2, uh, you see exactly the same geographical location is cited. Um, uh, we'll come back to this in a moment. So Ahaz and Hezekiah, chapter 7, chapter 36, or 7 to 12 and 36 to 39, um, form a bracket. Both Ahaz and Hezekiah, the people of God in both those sections, are facing a mighty army coming against them. And the question is, who will they, who will they stand, who will they trust in? They've got this mighty army coming against them. Are they going to trust the Lord to deliver them? Or will they put their trust in another nation to save them? That's really the issue. In, in uh, 7 to 12, Ahaz spectacularly fails to trust the Lord. And as a result, God's people come under judgment. In 36 and 37, Hezekiah does trust the Lord. And wonderfully, the Lord delivers his people from uh, the mighty Assyrian army. Now, having noted that structure, that is the structure within the structure, 7 to, seven to 39, these, these brackets, 7 to 12 and 36 to 39, you've then got two other sections that you'll see uh, on the sheet there, 13 to 27 and 28 to, uh, oh dear, I put 25, that's 28 to 35, beg your pardon, that would be a strange way to write it, wouldn't it? 28 to 35. Um, 13 to 27, the oracles concerning the nations. Uh, calling on Judah to trust the Lord and not nations. Now, we, we pre- I preached through that la- this time last year. Do you remember we kept looking at these different nations? And they were oracles not to the nations, but concerning the nations each time, telling Judah, the people of God, don't put your trust in the nations. In fact, some of the nations are going to end up putting their trust in, in your God and try running to you. Um, that was one of the things we saw. And then our section this time, 28 to 35, we see this series of woes. And, um, and, and that's the bit I'm now going to uh, focus on in, in, in just a moment. That, that's the section. We, the, we, there's two really sections we're going to do this morning. 28 to 35, 36 to 39. So 28, this series of woes. Now, the big, the big theme then is trust through the whole of this section from 7 to 39. Um, who am I going to trust when the world comes bearing down upon me? So again, let me just do this with you in, in the context of the book. And then I might ask you to try and think about how we might apply this to ourselves. Um, uh, in in 7, to, 7 to 12, um, uh, as, as this great army comes down upon Judah... Uh, upon Judah. Ahaz is thinking, hmm, um, how am I going to stand against, how are we going to stand against this army? I know we'll put our trust in another part of the world, another nation to save us. That's exactly what we're going to see in 28 to 35. The Assyrians, in all their mighty power, have wiped out the northern kingdom, Israel, they're coming down, um, 
that Israel is just about finished off and Judah is scared stiff. Are we going to be next? Well, they are going to be next. And the Egyptians are saying, hey, we'll stand with you. And Judah's got this opportunity to say, no, we're going to trust in the Lord to save us. Or they can go and try and turn to the Egyptians to get them to trust them. Now, here's the point. Here's the big phrase. The world comes bearing down upon us. Are we going to trust the Lord or are we going to turn to the world, another aspect of the world, to save us? That's always the issue in, from 7 to 39. As the world comes bearing down upon us, are we going to trust in another aspect of the world to save us? Which is why we've called the whole series, Don't Trust the World. Um, uh, here's, um, here's kind of my, my big application. I used it a lot last time, I'll use it a lot this time. But I'm sure there's a lot more that we ought to be sort of trying to tease out. I, I think that, that what, we have, what we have begun as a nation and as a people, and unfortunately as Christians as well, what we have generally trusted in in the West is money. So the world is a scary place, isn't it? There's lots of things that come bearing down upon us. You, you will feel it in your own life from time to time. You feel overwhelmed by the world one way and another. And we tend to think, I think Christians as well, sadly, we tend to think, if I've got enough money in the bank, I can be rescued from all the problems the world might come with that might, might bring, bring upon me. So it might be bad health. Uh, well, if bad health comes upon me, you know, if I've got enough money, then uh, I can buy my private, you know, my, my, my private um, uh, um, health scheme or I can, you know, I can, I, I'll be, money will, will rescue me. Do you see the point? Um, bad things come upon me. Money will get me out of the problem. Um, so the world comes bearing down upon us. We trust not the Lord to deliver us, but we trust something else, some other aspect of the world. That's the big application. Do you want to just kind of um, have a little think about how we do that uh, more? Um, we, we, we try to think about it on Wednesday. One person helpfully said, you know, it might be image. Um, so, you know, if I, or, or look, you know, certainly looks for something, and not for me, but for some people, you know, so, but we do, don't we think, if I look good enough, I can get on in the world. The world's a scary place. My looks, my, my body, if it's in the right state, will get me, will buy me an offer, will get me through things. You see, that's why people spend so long, um, you know, with a tuck here and a bit of liposuction there. And it's why they're bothered by that, because they think it buys them salvation in a way, do you see? Uh, why they spend so much time on looking good with the right clothes. I chose this. I chose this shirt quite carefully this morning. It wasn't just the first one off the... Uh, it was the only one that was iron. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Why? Because I think what I look like really matters. Now, I'm not saying that what you look like doesn't matter, but you see how, you see how it's very subtle. The world is a scary place. Oh, I'll, I'll go to image. I'll go to what I look like um, to rescue me. You see? Do you want to just do a little bit of time? Let's just do um, uh, maybe three or four minutes on how we might think about how the world comes bearing down upon us and how we look to then some other aspect in the world run the Lord to rescue us. Okay, can we come back together again? I'm cheating a bit here because the things you now say, this would be a great application, I can then use in my sermons. And um, 
and then you'll do them in your groups and everybody will say oh you got that off Paul whereas actually I got it off you you see as long as you get in first everything you did originally um, any thoughts and now you're not going to tell me any of your thoughts are you because you're going to save that for my group um, any, um, any thoughts on, um, on how we do this thing Oh, you've been talking about the football. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, Tom. We were just talking about fitness and how our obsession with being fit is an end in itself. So, you know, it takes more time off than it's only for all this. You know, you become obsessed, especially with male striking work. Yeah. Squash, down, yeah. I think it's very hard. I'm going to repeat that for the tape, as they say. You know, obviously, I've regularly been in those situations where we have to please say it for the tape. Oh, you're not with me, are you? you know, it's a, no, no, none of you have ever been there. You speak to you when you're being interviewed by the police, you see. Let's just repeat this for the tape. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was only... Just a little gag. <laughs> Ten past nine. Come on, wake up. Stay with me. I'm going to say this is it. So Tom was just helpful. What were you saying? He was helpfully saying our big obsession... Our big obsession is with, um, is with, is with fitness. So that's a very similar sort of thing. You see, if my health is good, then I can cope with anything. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with fitness. See, a lot of these things are good things. They're not bad things in and of themselves. It's just when they become the thing on which we really trust, that becomes a problem. Uh, if I'm really well, I'll be all right. Um, I can cope with anything. And frankly, when I'm feeling well, I feel I can cope with things. Which is why when, when um, bad health hits, for me, it is a disaster. Do you notice that in your groups? When you ask them to, to pray, what do they pray for? Good health. Good health for so-and-so, for this, that and the other. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to pray for good health. Of course it is. But do you see how it becomes everything to us? That's Tom's point. Well, I don't know if that's your point, Tom, but that's the point I'm making of it. And it's very helpful. Um, so just worth watching. What am I really trusting in? If I'm really trusting in my health, when my health goes, everything goes. And then I start, where's the Lord? Well, if I was trusting him, see the point? I'm not saying it doesn't matter about my health. I'm just saying if that's the place, I'm, that's the thing I'm placing my trust in. Uh, so that's helpful. Anything else? Yes. Oh, so education. Yeah, which school we get the, the kids into. Very good point. So education, if I'm well educated, that's very good for forward, isn't it? And I'm not saying anything more with education. But when that becomes the thing which will rescue me, if I have a good job, if I, it, because it will lead to me getting a good career, which will lead to me getting money, which are all the things which rescue me through the hard, hardships of the world, exactly, it's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, there's a question. If Christ came back tomorrow, would you be comfortable with your bank account? Mm. Certainly wouldn't need it, would you? <laughs> So the whole thing of money, yeah, very helpful. Thanks. What we say about relationships and friendships and approval? Yeah, helpful. Yeah, approval. That's very deep, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I, if I, uh, yeah, that's really what I'm looking for. I need to be, I need to get the approval of others. Yeah, that's what will rescue me. My fr- if I've got the friendships around me when things go wrong, yeah. And the problem with all these things is then. When I've got a choice between trusting the Lord or trusting, um, you know, this other thing, if I put so much on this other thing, I go for the other thing. So if approval is my thing, 
I won't quite stand up for the Lord here because I might lose my friends over that. See how it works over there. We'll see, we'll see this act. We're going to do a 1 Peter next term and we'll see that very big in 1 Peter. That kind of thing. So that's the sort of thing to be thinking about right through this section. And you might say we're doing the same thing every week. Yes, you are, because this section does the same thing every week. Don't lose your nerve on this. Don't think, oh, we did that last week, therefore we can't do it again. I think as a Bible teacher, I'm learning more and more. I have to keep saying the same thing three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine, nine or ten times before people get it and then apply it to their own lives. I, I used to think, if I say it once, that's, that's it, I've always got it. It's not how it works. Often because I've spent hours thinking about it and I've kind of internalised it and worked on it and worked on it and then I say it once and it's gone. And, you know, how can you expect people just to kind of pick it up like that? So as small group leaders, don't be ashamed of saying, Let's do, what did we say last week? You, might, you just want to think of slightly different ways of putting it. Same point, but just, just twist it a little bit, twist the, the dial a little bit to be pointing in a slightly different direction in terms of it's the same application. You just you see, that's just something worth doing. Yeah, I didn't have that prepared, so that, that comes free, okay? It's just extra. Yeah, that's uh, at no cost. Let's have a look uh, now over on page three of your handout, chapters 28 to 35, um, uh, and, and then we'll do 36 to 39. The structure of 28 to 35 is ever so straightforward. It's great when you see straightforward uh, uh, structures. It, they're, all, they're a series of woes. Uh, you'll see the, the six woes written down there um, uh, on your handout, so I don't need to go through them. And, um, and then there's a, a little summary in chapters 34 and 35. Now, um, we've come across the word woe before in the book of Isaiah. In the introduction uh, to the book, in chapter 5, there are, interestingly, six woes. I've not chased this up. There are six woes here, and there are six woes in chapter 5. There might well be a connection there, but I've not chased that up. So if you want to do some work sometime and find out if there is, there might not be. But if there is, you can then tell me, and I don't have to do the work, which would be great. Um, And chapter 6, verse 5, which we know chapter 6 very well, don't we? That great vision of Isaiah. And... um, uh, when he sees the Lord. And what does he say? Woe is me. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people uh, of unclean lips. Woe. Now, woe is a word used when encountering uh, sin and the judgment that follows. But very interestingly, woe is a funeral lament. So that kind of word, woe, it's, it's, I've got two funerals coming up this week. And uh, if I was in that setting, I would hear woe at both those funerals. That's what people would say. It's a funeral lament. So the point is this, you see. Persist in your way, that is in your way of sin and of turning from the Lord and trusting in other things rather than the Lord and it will result in your death, in your spiritual death. It's pretty serious. Really serious. Um, Indeed, when Isaiah says woe, I reckon he's actually basically saying I'm doomed. He's basically starting to sing his, he's he's written out his his, his hymns for his funeral, but he's not just written them out, he's starting to sing it. He's saying, well, I'm as good as a dead man. That's what this is saying. You start doing that, you're as good as dead, spiritually. That's really serious. Every time you see, don't jump over the woe, you might want to remind people six times, sorry, six I'll remind people six times. I want to remind people six times uh, of the uh, of what that word means, and uh, that might set up each one. Now, 
Each woe is given to Judah. Remember, this is about Judah, the southern kingdom, the real people of God rather than any of the other nations. But on two occasions, the woe seems to be directed towards um, a different nation. The first woe is the woe given to Ephraim. You'll see that, chapter 28, verse 1. Do you want to uh, have a look at chapter 28, just so you can see it? I'll give you time to flip open to 28.1. Now, I think this is really important. If you keep remembering, the woes are there for the people of God, for Judah, even if they are apparently addressed to a different nation. Now, the first one says, chapter 28, verse 1, Woe to that reef, the pride of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is another word for Israel, the northern tribes. But if you look on to verse 14, you'll see, having looked at the first 13 verses of uh, chapter 28, uh, Woe to Ephraim, we then read, verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you, pe- you who rule this people in Jerusalem. He's actually saying... Um, um, this is a woe to Ephraim, but it's, it's really addressed to Judah, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, saying, look at them and don't go the same way. Learn from their mistakes. Um, you'll see, similarly, in chapter 33, verse 1, again, if you want to just flip over, the woe is to the destroyer, and as you read on, the destroyer is the Assyrians. The Assyrians. You've got to. I always emphasise when I'm doing Isaiah Assyrians because there's also another nation which is still around today, of course, Syria. They were around. They're two separate nations. But the Assyrians were the uh, the great world superpower of the day. They are the destroyer. They are the people actually that the Lord is using to bring judgment on all these nations. But chapter thirty-three, one. While it is a woe to the destroyer to the Assyrians, it's actually a, a, a woe that Judah should be listening to because it says, look, um, the Assyrians are going to be destroyed. The Lord Almighty is powerful even over them. And so you, Judah, really ought to be trusting who? The Lord, not the Assyrians. Even though they look powerful, they're not, not compared to the Lord Almighty. So again, the big thrust is right through this section is to Judah, the people of God, telling them not to put their trust elsewhere, but to put their trust in the Lord. And where they are tempted to put their trust um, is in um, Egypt. Now I put that on the uh, bottom of page three. 28 to 35 is a call to Judah not to put their trust in Egypt, but to trust the Lord. And we'll see that um, in just a moment. Now, are you okay so far? Any questions so far? It's not really very complicated, is it? It's okay. Okay, good, good, good. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to jump through this fairly quickly, I think, uh, this next little section, which is the historical setting. Uh, look down to that bit where I put Judah, cha- uh, Judah chapters 28-35. Um, I think that should read Isaiah chapters 28-35. Anyway, there we go. So here we are. Quick, very quickly, listen in. If I go too quickly at any point, just put your hand up, tell me to stop, and we'll stop, and I'll go back slowly. The section from chapters 7-12... to 12, 
we saw the nation of Judah were fearful of the northern alliance, an alliance between Syria and Israel. Israel and Syria had formed an alliance because of the military threat from the world superpower of the Assyrians. And in chapter 7, verse 9, through Isaiah the prophet, the Lord had told King Ahaz, the king of Judah, not to fear the northern alliance, but to trust the Lord. Do you remember that great verse, chapter 7, verse 9? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now Judah failed to heed this warning, and King Ahaz formed an alliance with the mighty Assyrians. Now the situation has moved on from chapter 7 to 12. The alliance that Judah made with Assyria is catching up with them. And Assyria has conquered or virtually finished conquering Ephraim, Israel, the northern tribe. And uh, Assyria will now turn to swallow up Judah next. And uh, so John Oswald writes, um, The flood that Isaiah foretold in chapter 8 is about to burst full force against the southern kingdom. So now in chapters 28 to 35, we see that Judah has not listened to Isaiah and she believes her security lies in getting into bed with the world. Just the same message we've been thinking about. Judah's foreign policy continues to be centred on making foreign alliances. Assyria was making inroads into West Palestine and Judah. Egypt was making anti-Assyrian noises and promising military aid. And so Judah turned towards an alliance with Egypt. Now turn with me, if you will, to uh, chapter 31, verse 1. And we'll see the very big verse. And then I'll get on to what is my most, my most um, uh, for me, the most exciting aspect of 28 to 35. I'm going to give you in just a moment. Look at 31.1. This is where the whole section is going. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Do you see the problem? The mighty Assyrians are coming down. Judah's scared. There's this other nation, Egypt, which has been very great in the past and still has some signs of greatness. And Judah says, let's trust Egypt to fight against the Assyrians. So they're going down to Egypt to trust Egypt. But you see the end of verse 31, they won't trust the Lord. Uh, so Barry Webb, the key issue in 28.35 is whether Judah and in particular its leaders will rely on Egypt or on the Lord in the face of the growing threat posed by the ever-increasing power of Assyria. Uh, Alan Harmon, trust in human power is shown to be folly. The only hope for both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, is trust in the Lord as king. Now, a look at the top of page five. And this for me, when I got hold of this, I got very, very excited about this section. Um, so if you've, um, it, I'm not saying you've drifted off, but if you've just, just lost concentration for a moment, in the next five minutes, I think this will open up this section to you and you'll be, I'm really going to throw it out here now, you're going to be very excited about studying this, this when I do this bit. Okay, not complicated, just exciting. So I, I'm expecting um, your socks to be blown off. <laughs> By the end of the next five minutes, I'm expecting to see spiritual socks flying all over the room. Whatever that looks like, I want to see it. Here we go. So I want to apologise to Dorian and Timothy because that last thing, which was very colloquial, would have meant 
nothing to them at all. Uh, perhaps someone can explain what spiritual socks are later. <laughs> As this section progresses from 28 to 35, and particularly from 28 to 31, Judah, is, is, you'll see, is taking steps to make this alliance with Egypt. It's not just one movement. It's not just saying, oh, we're not going to trust the Lord, we're going to trust in Egypt. Because it doesn't happen like that, does it, in our lives? We don't just go from, as the people of God, as individual Christians, or as the people of God, we don't just say, I'm not trusting the Lord anymore, I'm going to trust this. Of course we don't. There are these very subtle steps down towards trusting something else. From, I am trusting the Lord, and well, I'm not trusting him quite as much as I did, to now I'm fully trusting something else, okay? It's why you see some people, you know, you, very rarely do you see somebody who uh, was a Christian and isn't a Christian anymore overnight. It might look like that, but when you start talking to them, what's happened is there's been months and years of them making compromises and stepping down. That's what we see here. So let me show you, uh, I've written it down on, on, the, on the sheet there, so there's no need to turn up the verses, you can turn them up later. But just see how it goes. In chapter 28, verse 14, we see, and we'll see this tomorrow when I preach it, they've stopped listening to the word of God. In chapter 29, verse 13, the next woe, their hearts are far from God. They go through the motions of religious activity, but they don't have a real and vital relationship with the Lord. Now, do you see, here's the first step. You stop trusting the Lord. You stop, you stop listening to his word and trusting him. You might still carry on, you know, going to church and doing religious things, but your heart begins to go far from the Lord. Do you know that feeling? I know it in my own life, sadly, when I've stopped trusting the Lord and I've, I'm still going through the motions. To everyone else, it looks as if I'm a real believer. Well, I hopefully am a real believer because I come back. But to everyone else, it looks like I'm really going for it. But I'm just going through the motions and my heart is far from the Lord. It all begins by me not trusting in his word. Next, 29.15. They begin to make plans in secret to make an alliance with Egypt. So you see, when your heart's not in it anymore and you're scared of the world, you don't say, I'm going to trust the Lord. You go, oh, I wonder if I could start to make some plans with something else to trust. So they haven't yet moved to Egypt, they haven't yet made an alliance with Egypt, just made this, this subtle move down to making a, shall we make some plans? It's bizarre, because they're making these plans in secret, as if the Lord can't see them. Yeah, anyway, we'll get onto that when we get onto that. But that's all a bit odd. But we do it, don't we? Now, this sort of scheming. I could do this. In chapter 30, verse 2, they make their plans without consulting the Lord. Well, of course, because they've moved very far from him. And chapter 30, verses 6 and 7, they're on their journey down to Egypt. So now they're really making a move. And when you look at 6 and 7, when we do that as a study, you'll see the remarkable lengths they went to to get to Egypt. It wasn't straightforward. It was a terrible journey, but they went through it. Now, again, I see this with people when they make a complete disaster with their lives, uh, uh, you know, pastorally. When they move from the Lord, they have to go, they, they do this plotting and scheming. And they have to go to great lengths to actually, you know, to, to kind of do whatever they're going to do. It's, a re- it's not an easy step. They go to great lengths to do this. And then in 31.1, they finally arrive in Egypt and they make their alliance with the Egyptians, trusting in horses and chariots rather than the Lord. Do you, do you find that quite exciting? I mean, it's depressing, but quite exciting. There's a definite movement through these chapters from Judah turning from the Lord to putting their trust in Egypt. Turning first, and this is crucial, first from God's word, resulting in religion without a heartfelt commitment to the Lord, plotting in secret how they can get into bed with Egypt, going on the journey down to Egypt, 
finally arriving in Egypt and making an alliance with Egypt and signing the treaty. But note where it begins. The first woe, Judah stopped listening to God's word and in their case to Isaiah. Long before they trusted in Egypt they fully, and fully turned their backs on the Lord, they stopped listening to the word of God. And so I've put on this next section uh, why there's uh, this, this theme of the word of God again and again and again. You see, if it's the word of God that, that they turned from that led to that downfall, then it's, the, it's coming back to the word of God that is going to help them to come back and trust the Lord. Now, are there any spiritual socks flying around? Are you excited about that? I, the reason I want to go slowly over that is if you keep that direction of travel in your mind, and in a way, each woe, uh, you know, if you've got this in front of you, each woe doing that one thing, yes, there'll be lots of detail, but you won't get bogged down and lost in the detail. You'll think, that's the point. Oh, I don't quite understand that verse and how that works, but I do understand this is the main point. This is the key verse. This is where we're going. And you can keep showing your group. Do you see the progression? You might, I don't know, you do it however you want. You might do it week one. You might say, this is where we're going. Or you might want to leave it as a kind of a bit of a surprise. But one way or the other, um, you, want to, you want to keep that progression in your mind and in theirs. And keep saying, do you see the problem? They didn't trust the Lord's word. They turned from the word, which is why you'll keep seeing that, 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 that from uh, that, those other verses there on the handout you'll keep seeing the word of the Lord being the crucial thing they need to turn back to. Because, of course, God is gracious, and even as we're plotting and scheming to move away from him, he keeps saying, come back to me. Come back to me. We come back to him through his word. There's not some other way. And then um, there's this woe to the uh, Syrians, which, as I've already said, is there uh, because it's showing Judah how foolish they are to trust in something else. Foolish, really, to be to be so scared of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to be destroyed themselves. Don't be worried about the destroyer. The destroyer is going to be destroyed. Be worried about the Lord who can destroy the destroyer. Trust him and you'll be all right. Um, And then in chapters 34 and 35, we have, um, as I put here, the ultimate warning and the ultimate promise. Well, it's Alan Harmon, I didn't put it. Uh, The ultimate warning, the ultimate promise of divine blessing and restoration. So this is kind of summary of that section. Uh, chapter 34 is a desert and judgment. And chapter 35 is a garden. Um, you, tr- you turn from the Lord the way that Judah did, you'll end up in a desert. You trust the Lord and you'll end up in a garden, a garden city. Uh, the garden city, which is the new heavenly Jerusalem. So that's how that section works. And then we've just got 36 to 39 to do, but I'll stop there for a moment. You kind of happy enough? Does it make sense? Yeah. I think it will be remarkably difficult if you just get bogged down in all the detail of the verses if you don't have that, that structure. I found myself all over the place a couple of years ago when I first looked at this. And as soon as I saw that, I go, oh, that's the point. But it took a long time to get there. Well, that's my job. Hopefully you're there. And uh, you will find lots of detail, lots of interesting little verses, and you could spend hours on them. Um, but see the big sweep and you'll be all right. And you'll keep going. Yes, Catherine, thank you. Can you tell me 
Well, yeah, yeah, no, no, you see, you're very astute. You see, sometimes I just jump over things because I don't really want to deal with them. So, um, no, if you go back to page three, no, it's fine. If you go back to page three, the fifth woe goes from 31.1 right through to 32.20. It's all one woe. So chapter 32 is all tied up with that that key verse in 31.1. So although I've only put one verse from 31 there in the progression, it carries right through to the end of 32. And then 33 is the woe against the Assyrians. So 33 is all about saying, don't, you see, you really shouldn't have trusted Egypt because I'm going to destroy the Assyrians anyway. Um, which is a great thing to hear for us before we trust, because this is to try and stop us from going the way of, um, of Judah. So, so if you're tempted to trust something else, don't. Uh, even if the world looks as if it's terribly fearful and it's going to crush you, that thing that is going to crush you, I'm the Lord, I'm going to crush it. Uh, so trust me. Is that okay? Great. Thank you. Good, good question. That's helpful. Well, let's have a look then at chapters 36 to 39. This won't be long. We're almost there. Um, and uh, yeah, good. We're on time. Um, I think we're on time. Are we kind of finishing about quarter two? Is that right? And then having a little break? Where's Tim? Yeah, that, that, that's how it kind of works. Okay. Um, now, I've kind of gone through some of this already. Do you remember, um, uh, if you want to look back on your little structure thing, um, 7 to 12 and 36 to 39 form a bracket uh, for, that, for this whole section that we're looking at. Um, 7 to 12, Ahaz, 36 to 39, Hezekiah. You'll see the parallels between them. Um, uh, sorry, I put down a historical setting there. You can, you can have a look at that in your own time. Um, uh, I, I've jumped over to page 6. Um, in case you're trying to follow me. So exactly the same geographical location in 7.3 and 36.2. They're at the Washerman's Field, on the road to the Washerman's Field. You might remember some of that stuff. Um, So it's not a coincidence that um, Isaiah meets Ahaz and then Isaiah meets Hezekiah in exactly the same places, uh, with exactly the same problem, a great mighty army coming down upon uh, coming down upon Isaiah, uh, upon Judah, and who are they going to trust? It's interesting. Tim was just telling me that one of the things that he found most interesting in studying this recently for the students was these are both moments of crisis. I think that was the expression that you just helpfully, he only just said it to me a few moments ago. I found it very helpful. Great moment of crisis. And in the crisis, you've got a moment of who you're going to trust. Now, crises are often moments when you can make a decision to go the right way or the wrong way, aren't they? And they're not great, and we don't want them. But those are the moments uh, when we can trust. Ahaz fails spectacularly. Hezekiah trusts the Lord and the people of God are delivered. So it's very, very exciting. He doesn't make an alliance. Hezekiah, for the almost like the first time from chapter 7, right through to chapter 35. For the first time, the people of God haven't made an alliance, but they've, they've stood firm. Actually, at one stage, that's basically all that Hezekiah does. He just stands there. Going to trust the Lord. And uh, the mighty Assyrian army are beaten. Showing, really, the truth of chapter 33. The Lord can. Can and is more powerful than even the, the Assyrians. 
So that's how, this, that's how that section works. And uh, you'll find that in... Um, uh, yeah, 36.5, you'll see I put it there. There's the, the question, on whom are you depending? It's a great question. It's actually asked by the, by the Assyrian commander. Uh, but it's a great question, and it really is the question of the section. On whom are you trusting? Um, on whom are you depending? And in 36 and 37, Hezekiah trusts the Lord and Jerusalem is saved. And that really ought to be the end of that section. You go, hey, great, it's turned out okay. But then in 38 and 39... Uh, in 38, you see Hezekiah's weakness. He's, in, he's, he's ill. Um, and in 39, his sinfulness in that he's proud. Now, we'll see this when we go through it in detail. Um, but it's a very interesting moment because um, just I don't get bogged down with this with your, with your groups, but um, 38 and 39 is probably chronologically... Probably chronologically, it comes before 36 and 37, which raises the question, why has Isaiah decided to structure his material that he puts 38 and 39 after 36 and 37? I think it goes like this. In 36 and 37, we see this great deliverance, and Hezekiah has been at the head of it, the King Hezekiah. And just when we're tempted to think, I wonder if Hezekiah could be the great, not just a deliverer, but the great deliverer, we see in 38 and 39 that he's not. So he's done something spectacularly brilliant. Well, he's done what we should all do. Trust the Lord. But we might be asking, is he more than just an example? Is he the one who's been promised early on in Isaiah? This is where you get the whole structure of the book. See, we want, how is God going to take, going back to the big, big stretch, how is God going to take a sinful people in a terribly sinful city to be a... Um, holy people in the new heavenly Jerusalem. Why, how's he going to do that? Well, he's made promises along the way. There's going to be one who's going to be able to do that for us. And do you remember the great promise in chapter 7? Um, that there's going to be one born of a virgin? Well, we remember who that is, don't we? We now know, of course. Um, do you remember in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and uh, the government will be on his shoulders. Um, yes, of course, remember that. It's Christmas, isn't it? And remember the great promise in chapter 11 um, that from the stump of Jesse, a great group will come up. These are all references that I've put on the handout there. Remember those promises? So Isaiah has set us up, you see, at this point, saying, oh, it's going to be one who's going to be the deliverer. One's going to be the deliverer. One the... And then Hezekiah comes up. We go, oh, Hezekiah's the deliverer. And then the 36 and 37, you think, yes, he is. And then 38 and 39, you go, no, he isn't, because he's sinful and he's weak. So he's not the deliverer. So I think that's why this comes where it does. And um, there'll be some really very interesting studies that we'll find in 38 and 39. Because in 36 and 37, when Hezekiah was at this crisis moment, he trusts the Lord. And then when he's better, he stops trusting the Lord and becomes all proud and thinks he can trust himself again. Isn't that you and me? Well, it might not be you, but it's me. In the moments when it's most difficult, I find myself getting down on my knees and praying not just going through the motions of praying, but really praying, Lord, I can't do this. I need you to get me out of this mess. And then when everything's going well, I stop praying. Do you do that? Well, not like that anyway. I don't really pray. That's says a client. When I'm really in, in trouble, 36 and 37, um, you know, hopefully I do a Hezekiah rather than Ahaz, and I trust the Lord. Um, and then 38 and 39, I can trust myself. I've become all proud. Oh, I can cope with this. 
That's basically what we'll see at the end. So, there we are. Oh, look. Two minutes to go. That was good timing. Any questions? You've got two minutes for questions. No, as many as you like. Any questions? So there wasn't much group work in that, was there? That was quite a lot of listening. So I hope I haven't completely frazzled your brain for Ben and then for, for Pete. We're very much looking forward to hearing Pete. I'm sorry, I can't stay because I'm going to do another thing downstairs for the Christianity Explored uh, leaders. Um, so um, I haven't got a clue what, what Pete's uh, vision for the groups are. So one day I'll find out. <laughs> I do actually because he gave a very good vision during, the, um, during his interview. Um, just in terms of the Yes. How do you get that in Thank you. What a great question. Hadn't even thought of asking that one. It's exactly the right question, you see. Um, well, that's a bit worrying. I'm going to have to work hard before tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm preaching on this. I haven't even thought of that. How do we, how do, we do that? Um, yeah, the question that Stu, uh, that Stu has asked is very helpful. With the last bit, I've made the made the point that Jesus is the, is, is, is the deliverer. He is the one who, you know, he is the one in whom we, are, we, we will, if we trust, we will find complete deliverance. So we get that in the last week. But how do we get that in all the other weeks? Um, uh, you know, or don't we? Well, I am convinced that in order to, if we're going to handle the Old Testament correctly, having said I'm convinced of it, I've done it very well, if we're going to handle the Old Testament correctly, we should always end up thinking of Jesus. We, if we only say what a Jew could say, we haven't, we haven't studied the Bible Christianly, have we? So it's very important to be able to do that. Um, what you don't want to do is in such a twee way that, you know, there are, this didn't work, but there is a deliverer, isn't there? But that probably is, I haven't said it's twee, it's probably the only way I can think of doing it at the moment. Ben, you got any thoughts? <laughs> oh, Tim. Come on, come on, come and tell us, Tim, because I, I need some help. It's a good question. It's the right question. Just very briefly, in that first study in 28, um, right in the middle there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. That's right, no, carry on. Oh. Carry on yeah. right, 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 right in the middle there, yeah. in verse 16. Um, so he's held up the object lesson of Israel and said, look, you don't want to be like the big sister, do you? See what's happened to her. She's going to be swept away. And then he turns it on them in verse 14 and says, look, therefore you hear the word, you scoffers, you... Uh, who rule as people in Jerusalem, he brings it home to them and says, no, 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 it's you I'm talking to as well. You learn from this object lesson. Two verses later in verse 16, he says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed or put to shame. So where are you going to place your trust? You're going to place it on a firm foundation that's never going to be swept away by any invading army from the north or northeast. Uh, and it might remind you of somebody else. And that verse obviously is picked up in Romans yeah. and 1 Peter. Yeah. <laughs> and remarkably, I do have that already in my sermon for tomorrow, but I, <laughs> I've just forgotten. So there are quite a few times when, the, when, the, when those verses are picked up in the New Testament, and that's probably the way to do it. But there we are. Thank you, Tim. Got me out of a, got me out of a hole. Great. And so it's probably good to turn over to Tim now before I say anything else stupid. But I hope that's helpful. Um, do please feel free to uh, ask me along the way if you've got any questions. I'll try and... Oh, can I say one little thing about the, the, the notes that I'm going to produce? You hopefully have got the first set of notes. Um, I'm sure you have. And I'm going to desperately produce the other ones before, the, uh, before we get to Tuesday this week, so you're a week ahead. Um, I put a lot on the front 
of uh, kind of structure and understanding and everything. And you might look at those and think every week is the same thing. Now, actually, they will be subtly changed along the way when we need to know something a bit different. So they might look the same each time. But I'm deliberately keeping all that stuff on the front because I know that different people lead your group sometimes. And uh, I just thought it's probably easier to have uh, all of that stuff so you can hand them the whole study in one go and say, you know, actually, if you read this, just to get the, the background. So, um, so but, but do look out for any kind of subtle changes within that. But yes, largely, it will often be the same, because obviously the structure of Isaiah never changes. Um, so I hope that's helpful. So, Tim, thanks very much indeed. Have a great rest of the morning, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you um, tomorrow. Thank you.